On this episode of the Average Sean podcast, Paul Carcatero of ESPN joins us. He's well known as a lacrosse broadcaster, as well as being a sideline broadcaster during college football season for ESPN. I will admit, going into this, uh, Chris and I had maybe planned to do our normal, like record a little bit between the two of us, then add the interview. But honestly, Kark was so awesome and so kind to us with his time that I just decided this has to be the show because anything else that we could add to it would honestly be a disservice. He was fantastic, both with like all the information he was willing to give us, how much he was willing to dive into detail and everything. So I'm going to try to stop gushing so much just because he really had no reason to, to treat us as kindly as he did, but he did. And that's awesome of for it. So here's the show. Listen to it. Please enjoy it. Give him some feedback because personally, I, I couldn't thank him enough for his time. Enjoy, guys. All right, we now welcome on a very special guest. Uh, I was very lucky that he chose to interact with my quote tweet and entertain my thoughts for a few minutes. We now <laughs> welcome on uh, Paul Carcaterra of ESPN, famously for the ESPN lacrosse content, also a sideline reporter for the football season. Uh, Kark, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. You know, it was a great weekend. First round of the NCAA playoffs is always super exciting. You know, it's the second season in the sport of college lacrosse. Um, so it's, it's, it's neat to see to see the, the page turn. And this year was super interesting for me just because I think there was a lot of drama when it came to the selection process, the matchups. Uh, but this weekend was awesome. You know, I was at Yale on Saturday in New Haven against uh, St. Joe's, and St. Joe's was was an awesome team. It kind of reminded me of like the first time Albany made the playoffs or really made a splash in the playoffs, uh, you know, in the mid two thousands, you felt like they belonged, right? Like they were a team that was just kind of entering the discussion in the NCAA playoff lacrosse realm, but they stamped it. And although they lost, like you're saying to yourself, like this is a program, this is a coach, this is a, a staff the style of players. Like they're not going anywhere. So that was Saturday. And then, Sunday made the track up actually Saturday night through the night uh, to Cornell for the Ohio State Cornell game in Ithaca. And we had rain delays. We had, you know, pauses <laughs> in the action, got home super, super late. I'm a little zapped, but th this is the time of the year where like you, sometimes you just have to pinch yourself and say like, stop complaining if you're tired because the rest of the year, like you love this time of the year more than, than any. So like, don't complain about it. But Sunday at Ithaca, was really, really cool, too, because there's a couple players on that field that, to me, just separated themselves. Obviously, C.J. Kirst, who's the Ivy League Rookie of the Year with seven goals, was incredible, and he scored in so many different ways. But Gavin Adler, the five foot eight defender for Cornell, is about as good as it gets at that position, and he mauls anyone who steps in his way, whether they're <laughs> – Six foot, six four, it doesn't matter. Like he's absolutely dominated every matchup. And he did it again on, on Sunday in Ithaca. So it, this weekend had a little bit of everything. It had uh, the beginning of a, a team in St. Joe's that I think is, is here to stay. It had some star power, had some drama, 
kind of solidified some of our notions in terms of the playoffs and who belonged and who didn't. Um, but we're on to the quarters, man. So I'm, I'm actually kind of afraid that you already answered my first question because the, <laughs> the first thing I was going to ask you was like what your biggest takeaway from the weekend was. So I guess I'm going to adjust it now. Was St. Joe's your biggest takeaway or, or was there something else that really kind of stood above the fray for you? I think St. Joe's definitely was one of my biggest takeaways because I watched a lot of them on tape, you know, throughout the course of the season and I watched some of their full games. And then when I had the assignment of covering them this weekend, I watched more of them and I talked to people who, who watched a lot of St. Joe's and there was a few players like the Levi Anderson's of the world, uh, the Matt Bomers of the world. Like those guys kind of came into the game in my mind with a little bit of hype and they kind of passed even my expectations and those guys are back. And I think they have a nucleus with Zach Cole at the faceoff dot. And although he was terrific in the first half, um, that's what May's all about. You know, his trend throughout the season was he was better in the second half and that didn't happen on Saturday. And there was unknowns for Yale, like James Ball who took less than 30 faceoffs, who was the biggest factor uh, in the second half. So like, that's what the drama of May is all about. So that was one of my takeaways with, with St. Joe's. And I think my other takeaway was everything that I felt about Notre Dame not being in the playoffs was kind of solidified. I felt even, I don't know, more conviction about it. And, and I don't want to cry over spilt milk and you can't go back in time. And who wants to hear someone talking about a team that's not in there as we're heading into the quarterfinals. But, but I just think that, Harvard, as good as they'll be in the future, and there are so many freshmen on that team, Notre Dame belonged in the playoffs, right? They belonged in the NCAA tournament with a shot at a national title. And I just, you know, I watched some of, of the games on Sunday, the games when I was calling. Obviously, I was fully attentive, but we had the rain delay, so it allowed me to, to catch up on some things and, and, and watch, uh, watch what was taking place elsewhere. I just, I still have my head wrapped around Notre Dame and the eye test is real for me. I watch about as much lacrosse as anyone and to have that team, which might be the second most complete team in the country, not in the tournament field was, was crazy, but Delaware too. Like how can we not talk about Delaware, right? They beat the number two seed Georgetown on the road Sunday night. That was, that was really, really cool to, to watch. And I've watched some of Delaware too, right? Like Delaware has, really legit offensive players. You see the skills of those guys? You see Michael Robinson's behind the back? I mean, yes. hello. <laughs> well, so obviously Delaware, arguably the biggest upset of the, of the weekend, right? Um, do you expect the run to continue? You know, you got to see Cornell in person, right? So what, what's your, you know, what's your forecast for that matchup? I think it's going to be a really good game. You know, Delaware is not a team that relies on like one player to initiate all their offense. If they did, I'd be worried about them because Gavin Adler would erase that player. Like Jack Myers is the quarterback for Ohio state. Everything runs through him. When you have a quarterback that touches the ball so much and he's erased by a lockdown defender, you worry about like where your offense comes from. Delaware's really not that team. They spread the ball around multiple scores. They have balance in their offense. I think that's a team that doesn't have to worry about Gavin Adler as much. Do you know what I mean? Like when you have a team that has a undisputed quarterback that, that handles the ball, every possession, if he's erased, like you got to go to option two. And 
only a few teams can go to option two. Virginia can go to option two with, with Matt Moore. Yale can go to option two with Leo Johnson, who's only a freshman. If Matt Brandau's having a tough time, like you saw in the semifinals of the Ivy League, Gavin Adler raced Matt Brandau and Leo Johnson stepped up. So you need a second quarterback if you're if you're playing a team like Cornell or you have to have a, a different kind of ball movement offense. Like Maryland doesn't rely on one guy. Now, as much as Wisnowskis is the, you know, the, the big leader in the clubhouse in terms of his stats and toward time finalists, you could argue like the, the offense really doesn't run through him. The offense runs through everyone at Maryland. Well, so speaking of Maryland, and actually before I ask that question, we Chris and I are 2000 alums, so while it was fun seeing Georgetown get beat, I, I have to admit and tell you, we're going to be hard-pressed to give Delaware their flowers. <laughs> they, they, they are our primary rival. They knocked out our basketball team from getting in the NCAA tournament. I don't like them very much. but I'm still bitter if you can't tell. <laughs> just a little. Um, now, moving to Maryland, the team that Chris and I grew up like rooting for because they're the big school here. Sure. What does somebody need to do to beat them? Uh, Grace, I don't want them to be beaten, but what does somebody have to do in, in order to make that happen? Jeez. Well, I think first and foremost, you need a really good team defense, right? So a team like Yale has kind of been exposed defensively a little bit in the last few weeks, ball movement, uh, sliding in terms of the timing of the slides, you know, a, a little bit kind of mashed potatoes in terms of their consistency to play defense. They struggle with that matchup unless obviously they turn things around. You need a defense that plays like in sync, great off the ball, because Maryland is the one team in the country that I think takes it to another level when I say, like, they don't need a Dodger to score goals. They don't need to beat defenses to score goals. That ball moves at a frightening pace. So I think first and foremost, like, you have to play a perfect game almost off-ball defense because the ball spins so much. There's a lot of patterns in their offense, and they don't need a guy to – to, to beat a defender, to start their offense. Like they probe at you. They kind of just move the ball, little subtle jabs inside, get the defense to commit a little bit. And then the ball just moves at hyperspeed. So I look at Virginia, Virginia definitely is confident in that game because they've won the last two national titles and they beat Maryland in the title game a year ago. And even though it didn't work out well in the rematch in, in March, you know, I, I think Virginia, and this sounds crazy, probably has like a, I don't know, 30% chance of, of winning that game. And throughout the course of the season, if you were asking me other opponents playing Maryland, I'm like, ah, 5% chance, ah, 10% chance. So if I'm willing to say like they have three times the chance of anyone else who's ever played, that's a pretty good chance, right? Like if someone told me, you know, I would have 30% chance of, of winning the lotto, I'm going to bet a decent amount of money today, right? Like I, I, I kind of like 30%. So I think if, if Virginia plays really good off-ball defense, that will give Matthew Nunes, their freshman goalie, better looks at the Maryland shooters. If they don't play good off-ball defense, they're toast. Everyone always talks about the face-off. I mean, that's, that's obvious. So I think in the last matchup between Maryland and Virginia – Maryland had 15 extra possessions in that game due to the face-off discrepancy. Cut those in half. Um, I don't. I don't think Petey is as good as he is. 
is going to dominate that matchup. That could be like a 50-50 type thing. You know, even if Virginia is slightly under 50%, they still have a chance. They have to find other ways to get possession too. Their ride has always given them a few extra looks a game. Those little subtle things, you know. Um, in the midfield scoring, I think Virginia is healthier than they have been in the past. So I, I do I do like their chances to, to generate some offense. I think it's going to be a higher scoring game than people think. Uh, obviously, the, the Terps are favored. They're one of the, the better teams I've seen in the last decade in terms of team. Um, they really just are, are selfless in their approach. But I think for Maryland to lose, you got to you got to play unbelievable team defense. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is you got to find opportunities to run. Like not many teams have been able to run on Maryland. Like when Maryland plays a half field game on both sides of the field, you're in trouble. Virginia has the athletes to run. I think um, they have to be able to go from defense to offense with, with some of their close defenders like Cole Kastner, their short sticks have to really play well. They have some two-way guys with, with Jeff Connor and, and some other players. Uh, Grayson Soliday was really good in championship weekend last year, starting offense from the other end. So find spots. So the two things are really good off-ball defense and, and run a little bit, like take chances, like create a pace in that game that Maryland's not accustomed to playing. Like Maryland has dominated everyone by breaking the field in half on both sides. So with that in mind, and I'll stick with the Maryland theme, but I'm going to jump up a level here. Logan Wisnowski, as you mentioned how unselfish the team is, he's clearly the number one because he's wearing the number one for Maryland. And those who know, know that like that is the number given to everybody who's considered like the best player on the team. But, you know, I'd say in terms of like public shine, he's, he's pretty low key. Like he's not like a Matt Rambo who got a ton of flowers during his time because yeah. he, he like he was the crux of everything. Now, you go to the PLL draft, and you, along with most everybody else, myself included, uh, not that I'm really an expert, had Chris Gray as the top overall, kind of like hands down, he's your first pick. Then Logan Wisnowskis gets picked number one by Chrome. You're sitting there at the desk, live show. What's your reaction in the moment when something as, I'd say, unexpected like that comes up? Good question. I think I, I first just asked myself, like, why did that happen? Because I felt like you did. And this is no disrespect to Logan. He's a phenomenal player. I just didn't think he was what the Chrome needed first. The Chrome needs a left-handed attackman, but they also need a quarterback too, because Jordan Wolf retired and he was, he was the man behind the cage. I know Jackson Morrill has played behind the cage. You know, he shared duties a little bit with Ben Reeves and then he shared duties a little bit with Matt Brandau at Yale. And as much as Jackson Morrill is a really, really good lacrosse player, I've never really seen him just completely quarterback a team where I'm convinced like you might not need Chris Gray, if that makes any sense. So my mm -hmm. attention automatically went to Jackson Morrill. And I, I know that might sound crazy, but that's what I thought of right away. Because I said, if, if you're drafting Logan Wisnowskis at number one, you really have faith in Jackson Morrill. Because the, the two needs of this team on attack were the guy behind and the guy on the left side. So if you decide that a lefty attackman who can pass, but he's not a quarterback, obviously can shoot, is the priority, then you feel really good about 
Jackson Morrill being your quarterback. It worked out really well for the Chrome because then they were able to get Brendan Nickturn, who's a quarterback, and I didn't see him falling that, that far. I think he's exceptional. He can take a beating. He's strong, elite vision. He's about as underrated as a player in college lacrosse as you're going to find. So it worked out perfectly for them because now you kind of have options. You could put Jackson Morrill and Brendan Nickturn as like those two quarterbacks, you know, like, like, Matt, like Matt Brandau was with, with Jackson Morrill, like Ben Reeves was with Jackson Morrill. So now it worked out great, but when he's selected number one, you don't know that they're getting Brendan Nickturn at number nine, right? Like that's just, that's just foolish to think that. So my immediate attention went to like, wow, this is the direction they're going behind the cage as much as it's who they just picked up. It's also like how they envision that other spot that I thought Chris Gray would be in. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I know. So kind of like pivoting off of that and more in the broadcast side of things, if uh, you know, you're in the middle of a live show and you're expecting something to happen, um, whether a play or in this, this case, a draft pick, you know, what's the recovery process like, um, you know, in with things fluctuating constantly? Kind of just like us talking right now. I think when you when you know the game really well and you're confident in your prep and, and my prep is different, like my prep's not like I don't sit there and and hunker down and study all day lacrosse stuff. I follow the game every day and I have since I was a little kid. So it's kind of just like cumulative and ongoing 365 days a year, if, if that makes any sense. So I'm never like a crammer in terms of prep. I'm always kind of just reacting. Like when you ask me a question, I, I wouldn't want you to, to send, you know, a, a podcast invitation and put the questions that you're going to ask me next to it. I'd rather just have a real conversation. So I guess it's just bobbing and weaving and, and reacting in real time. And, and if you, if you follow the sport, as much as I do, and you love the sport as much as I do, you're confident in anything that's thrown at you to make like quick, quick type of scenarios and, and connections between stuff that I don't know, like who's really thinking about Jackson Morrill when Logan Wisnowskis is, is drafted. Well, me, because I just, I don't know. That's kind of just the way my brain works. And I'm always covering the game and, and following the sport and knowing who's on what team and, and what their, their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. So we're, we're on the broadcasting t- side of things. So this is actually kind of relevant to something I've been wondering from somebody who does this, like you said, every day for a living, the league's on its second broadcasting contract, but it's also on its second broadcasting partner. So whether it's, you know, like consistency with a broadcasting partner, uh, maybe specific revenue numbers or something like that, what would you take as like your sign as, okay, the league is here to stay and it's going through like the same kind of popularity growth that we've seen, like maybe an MLS go through where they were kind of okay for a while, but then like in recent years, they have really exploded. So like, where, where would you kind of see that as like, all right, this is like that key moment where this is my sign. Right now is is my sign because if the league is in their first broadcasting contract and partnership right and then the second opportunity is up and they have multiple options which 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 they did that is the sign to me that this thing is headed in the right direction that they're wanted 
right? Like they didn't just automatically, you know, fall into, I don't know, just, just kind of just the flow of things of, of what was existing. Like they, they had a, a, a great situation with their initial broadcaster and, and everything uh, broadcast uh, partnership and, and everything looked and, and went great to the point where when, when that deal was, was exhausted, they had options, right? From my understanding, like there were multiple, there were multiple opportunities from a partnership perspective for the PLL. So if you have multiple partnership opportunities, when you have those options at your disposal, that means you're wanted. If you're wanted means people see trends, people see future, people see potential. So I, I think what happened this year and then being on their second um, partnership opportunity and then being wanted was, was everything you need to know. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, especially with someone who's an average kind of fan like Chris, that's part of the reason why I've been able to get them more involved is just, you know, the, the accessibility of it. Yeah. You know, being born and raised and just North of, of Baltimore. So basically Towson area, it's obviously like a hotbed of lacrosse. I, I went more of the, I grew up in a hockey family, so hockey route. Um, but I guess, you know, tying that in with PLL, um, you know, a casual fan such as myself or people that don't really know much about lacrosse at all, how would you pitch the PLL to them and, you know, try to get some traction um, within the fan bases? I think you pitch, I think you pitch the, the strength of, of the athletes on the field. When I say strength, I mean like the physical strength. I mean the skill. Um, I, I think you also tell the stories behind these players. Like, you know, the fate of a sport uh, that's coming out, I think will capture like the struggles of, of a professional lacrosse player, right? It's, it's, it's not all roses. Like there's a lot of sacrifices. Um, there's a lot of, of, of moments in time where you, you probably doubt yourself and, you know, you, you have to, you have to do one thing to get to that next level that, you know, oftentimes probably there's some second guessing because, you know, this isn't the NFL where these contracts are, are massive and life altering. Um, it's for the love of the game, but it's also, it's also an opportunity to tell the stories of, of what these players are actually doing and the sacrifices that they are making, like embrace that, right. Don't, don't hide from the fact that these athletes, although they are elite and they are best in class and they're the most unbelievably skilled lacrosse players in the world, they also have other lives. Many of them are related to lacrosse. Like, and I think that's one of the positives about pro lacrosse now, like in the early 2000s when the MLL was popping, like 80% of the players had other jobs that didn't have anything to do with lacrosse. Now I feel like when you watch a PLL game, you go down the roster, although they're supplementing their income with other jobs, those other jobs one way or another are related to lacrosse, whether they're running their own camps and clinics, or, you know, they have affiliation from a marketing standpoint with, with manufacturers that are aligned in lacrosse. Some of them are coaches. Like they've dedicated themselves to the sport of lacrosse that allows them to be better players, you know, better trained, better shape. Like the athletes are incredible that are playing in the PL. That'd be the first thing. The second thing that I think you would pitch to anyone who's, who's interested in, 
and watching the PLL is, is the access, like the access that we will have this summer and that you saw over the last three seasons is, is kind of incredible, right? Like you, you hear from players on the field during action, um, their social media, the PLLs, and uh, what, what they do in terms of just opening up the, the, the door to, to who these people are at all times is, is crazy, right? Like it's just, I thought the draft is a perfect example. Like how many drafts are we questioning coaches and talking to them on set, right? Like you don't do that in other professional professional drafts and leagues so like the, the access is is ever flowing and it's always there for for the consumer so I, I think it's super exciting look if you watch the PLL the, the last few years it was it was it was great um, it was fun to watch it's action-packed the access was off the charts I'm really excited to be a part of that and I, I think ESPN's partnership with the PLL is going to be super, super strong because of the synergy between the college game and, and all of our college properties that kind of flow into the, the cross-promotional potential for the PLL and the cross-promotional potential for college lacrosse, right? Like we're, we're, we're under one roof there. Well, that, I mean, if, if I didn't love lacrosse already, I'd probably already be sold. I'm going to jump actually away from like serious questions because we're coming up here on time. I had a three-pack that I wanted to end with but being the time what it is, I'm only going to ask you one. And it's probably the you most important. Three. I, I can be late to my, to my next thing. You could ask me. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it. Um, so Chris wanted to know what your favorite lacrosse venue was. I'd like to know what PLL slash MLL like team you think is going to be the next one to join the league. Uh, but the, the one that I was going to ask if I was only going to ask one, it's probably the most important question that we could ask you all day. What are the requirements to get an invite to the Carcaterra family dinner? Because from your broadcast, <laughs> that sounds like it's not just a big deal. It is the deal. And supplemental question, how much percentage of your heritage has to be Italian? A, well, I'll, I'll start with heritage being Italian. Zero. I, I, like, <laughs> to, I like to feed all. I don't care what your background is, um, what your favorite cuisine is. It, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll take, take anyone in any background to feed. Like, I don't care if, you know, if you're, if you're Italian, if, you know, if you're from anywhere. Um, it, I think, I think feeding someone is, is also the best part to start a conversation. And I think the, the dinner table, at least the way I grew up, I grew up in an Italian family. My dad was the, the main cook of the house. It's, it's that part of the meal as much as the food is, is off the charts and, and great. It's the opportunity for everyone to join together. So like, I would, I would love to have anyone come to my house. I don't, I don't care who they are, where they're from, what they like to eat, what they don't like to eat. I, I welcome, welcome all. So to get that invitation. Yeah. Just as long as you're happy and you like to talk and eat, you're invited. Um, the other piece of it too is like, yeah, my family just, we just talk about food way too much too. And I know I talk about it a lot on, on, on air, but I talk about it a lot in life too. And that's the, the one thing about me. It's like, I'm, I'm not very different on air as opposed to who I am as a person. I don't have like my, my broadcasting type of, of person. And then my off air person, I, I am who I am. So I, I talk about food a lot during the, the day, whether I'm doing a game or not. Um, I have a brother, Brian, who's younger than me, 
loves food so much. He has an Instagram handle called the drunken meatball. All he does is <laughs> post stuff, post stuff with cooking and, and, you know, all different kinds of food. And he's super into it too. And then my older brother, Steve absolutely loves food too. Um, doesn't cook at the level of my, my brother, Brian, but he has a true, uh, love for for food love for italian food too he's a connoisseur so when the three of us get together it's just like you know you feel like you're gonna eat until you pop you, you walk out feeling like a swollen tick <laughs> <laughs> well let's say we're gonna burn some of that off we're gonna go play some lacrosse where's your favorite place to go watch a game wow um you know it was glockner for so long at the university of virginia but this new UNC facility is pretty sick. It looks I don't know amazing. If you guys have been there, but it's 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 amazing. Like Klockner for me has a lot of the I don't know the mystique, and you hear the benches and the and the and the bleachers kind of rattling when the fans are are getting pumped, and you know you have the the burn on the other side, and, and when it gets packed, it's just super super cool. I would say like that is is probably my number one. North Carolina's up there. Arlotta at at Notre Dame when it's packed is is awesome. I would say this though. Any non-football stadium when it's all lacrosse uh has a has a special piece to me. Like I don't like big football stadiums for lacrosse with football lines. Like to me, Rutgers plays in that massive stadium. They play the first round game against Harvard at Yersack Field. The place is juiced. It looks unbelievable on TV. Did you guys watch some of that game? Yes. It looks unbelievable. Like if you were to watch that game and those two same teams were playing in their football stadium, from a viewing standpoint, it's it's night and day. Like Rutgers should never play on that football field again unless the weather doesn't permit them to play on the grass. Like if it's early February, March, and it's, it's not good out, I get it. But like if they ever have opportunities to play – at that field, it looked unbelievable yesterday. Like football lines don't do it for me. I don't like watching games um, at the University of Maryland at, you know, what they used to call Bird Stadium, which I think is Maryland Stadium now. I grew up, it was always called Bird Stadium for me. So, you know, the University of Maryland's field, it's just like, I know they get 10,000 people at some games. Like, could you imagine if, if those fans tried to pack into a small, like intimate spot? It would feel like a rock concert. Ohio State, not doing it for me. They're, they're building a new lacrosse stadium. It's going to change the viewing experience there. You know, even the dome, like as much as I love the dome, I want that turf out of there. Like I don't want the football lines there. I, I think when a new <laughs> fan, and Chris, you were asking earlier, like to convince people to, to want to watch, like it's really hard to convince a new viewer that this game that they're watching on TV with football lines is as important as it would be if it didn't have football lines, right? Like my first question, if I'm a new fan, why are they playing on a football field? Why? Like if lacrosse is really, really important at Syracuse, why do they play on a football field? Like, why can't they drop a new turf during lacrosse season? I, I just like, I know people think it's not a big deal, but like a football lined field is a big deal for me. It, it's a, it's something that I don't like. I don't like watching games that have football lines. And I know some coaches love it because it gives them the orientation of the field and they can tell their players when you're on this hash, this is how you should play or, you know, play them when they get into the 30. I just, I, I'm not into it. I know you guys might have your own opinion. You might think I'm crazy, but like massive stadiums, like do me a favor, 
Watch Saturday's games, viewing-wise. Don't listen to the commentating. Don't look at the score. Like, put it on mute. Saturday's games at Hofstra. Watch it for a little bit, just viewing experience-wise. Then watch Sunday's games that are at Ohio State, in Ohio Stadium, in a 100,000-seat capacity stadium with football lines. Just tell me which one you think looks better. No, I honestly, having watched it for years, I couldn't agree with everything that you're saying more. It's it makes it so much easier. I mean, coaching high school across on the football field, it's, you know, hey, guys, you got to look, you got to watch the the blue lines, not the the white ones for the football field. And then, yeah. you know, you've also got like the soccer lines and everything. It, it's a whole mess. Yeah. So, Paul, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, anytime, guys. Yeah, we're going to wrap things up here. Uh, let Paul get to his meeting. Um, again, could not have been nicer to us with this time. Uh, when, if you're in Baltimore for the PLL, when they come here, please let me know. I would love to buy you a drink as a thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Be well. You too. Take care. Take care. Thank you. See you guys.